Passion, innovation, X-Factor, enthusiasm, and leadership in education. That's what the Pixel Classroom Podcast is all about. I'm your host, Ryan Reed, business and technology teacher. You can listen to the Pixel Classroom Podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, along with Breaker, Podcast, Radio Public, Stitcher, and Overcast. And you can even copy the RSS feed right to your computer for easy listening. And if you like what you hear, please think of subscribing to the podcast and please leave us a review. We'd love to hear you. Welcome to episode 26 for May 2020. Hope everyone's staying healthy and positive despite what is going on in the world today. And today on the Pixel Classroom Podcast, we are jumping into a very awesome episode. But our guest today, he is a global speaker, educator, author, TEDx speaker. Yes, he is. He's also from Canada and he's a certified Makey Makey educator. He is a coder inspiration and you can even hear him on his own podcast, Code Breaker. And he even might have a little something about a book series we'll talk about. And he's also, you can't see it right now, wearing an awesome uh, Toronto Blue Jays hat here. I would like to welcome my friend Brian Aspinall to the Pixel Classroom podcast. Hello and welcome, Brian. Amazing intro. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing pretty good, actually. You know, woke up, dog was sleeping, and, you know, it's actually pretty nice. We actually might get 73 here. Uh, the mow that lawn today. It, it's what's, that a lot of rain. Canadian, what's that in Canadian temperature? I'm Canadian. <laughs> I have to go Celsius now. Darn. See, you know, that, that's one thing about everybody lives in Canada. They always throw me these other things from such as inflation rates in Celsius versus Fahrenheit. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm as American Canadian as they come living so close to the Detroit border. We speak Fahrenheit here too. We do both. We're bilingual. That's what we say. American and Canadian and throw in some Francais and some Espanol. It is very true. You know, it's so funny too, as I was, ta- you know, I teach consumer ed here and we always uh, talk about, I always say, you know, who our biggest training partner is? The kids are like, China. I'm like, no, Japan. No. I'm like, they're like, who? I'm like, Canada. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, it's Canada. The biggest for imports and export is Canada from cartoons to syrup and to everything in between. I said, changed a couple of years, but a lot of these kids just like, look at me going, really? I never knew that. And then kids go and drugs. I'm like, yeah, yeah, drugs. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later, guys. <laughs> so, Brian, um, thank you for being part of this today. So, why why don't you give us a little uh, background on your work in education here? Absolutely, yeah. So, this, you know, when I'm going to go back to high school, I think, you know, when you fill out transitioning from eighth grade to ninth grade and you fill out those uh, forms, what do you want to do when you get older so that guidance office can kind of steer you in the right direction in high school? And I remember writing, I want to be a teacher. My mom taught uh, English as a second language for years. My grandfather taught high school chemistry. Um, But some other things happened in high school that led me to actually go into computer science as a result of some things that that I was doing at the time, teaching myself to code. But when I graduated uh, computer science, I thought, do I go to Toronto and chase the dot-com dream? I mean, this was right after Y2K, so there was a lot of opportunity in, in industry and computer science. But then I thought, you know what, cost of living, uh, every teacher in Ontario makes the same amount of money. And this is something I've always been passionate about. Maybe I'll just stay in my small town, go back to the faculty of ed, and I'll be a high school computer science teacher. So the majority of that happened, but I ended up in elementary. And here in Ontario, we've got two separate unions. So when you get hired by one, you don't typically jump because you lose your seniority. And at the time, it was really difficult to get a teaching job here in Ontario. So I teamed up with the elementary panel and found myself in seventh grade, eighth grade for 12 years where you teach to your strengths. So I've been doing coding since 
since I started in 2005. Uh, these days, I, I now teach teachers at four faculties of ed here in Ontario. I moved into the higher ed space where I can teach online, which then allows me to do my speaking and my consulting work on the side. Very nice. You know, and it's interesting you brought up the whole little union about switching and stuff. You know, I like me, my current union too, I was working for private and charter, so there wasn't anything like that. So when I kind of signed in, I did that. And I said, if I ever left that district, they said, well, you can sign over here. Or you just start over here, whatever your base pay rate is. But it's interesting that, as you said with yours, you know, I don't think it gets really changed. I know like in Finland and Europe, theirs have different structures of their union structure. I had a friend of mine who went and actually taught abroad in France several, several years ago. And it was very interesting for her after she left to come back the USA. Well, you always can just come right back and renew where you were. And she went, I can. Okay. That's, <laughs> I didn't know I could. She's figured like if I ever come back and say, I want to come back to Europe, I'll just start again. Like, oh, no, just, we'll just pop you in wherever you are and see what your, see what your experiences are. If you come back in a few years or not. I mean, she never went back, but it was kind of funny. She was kind of like, wait a minute. That's interesting. Well, exchange it, rate with that. It, it's funny you say that. I, I have 85 teacher students uh, in four courses this semester because substitute teachers are not working. So everybody is upgrading. So my enrollment has almost tripled this term. But what makes it funny uh, is for those students in my students, those te adult learners. <laughs> yeah, adult courses, learners. I've, I've been there myself. <laughs> yeah. Th those folks that are, that are new to the profession, in theory, would be my competitors if I decided next year to pursue secondary here in Ontario. I, in theory would start at the bottom and be like a high school substitute teacher like those that are in my course now it's that's just the way that our substitute teacher union uh came out got this clause in a few years back because teachers in toronto where there's seven or eight school districts were, were jumping around and they didn't feel that was fair to those uh <clears throat> getting started so that that's where that clause came from a few years back it's fascinating yeah, and it is. And it's really interesting, you know, especially here, because when this is recorded, like I said, we're just starting to have some ease restrictions with the pandemic. But it's also interesting how, you know, there's been a lot of articles talking about how it's gonna be very hard for substitute teachers right now, considering the situation and also screening process from out. But it's also very interesting, too, because I know some school district, you know, usually around November, January, they start advertising, hey, this position is going to come up in the fall for somebody. Hey, we need an English teacher. We need a math teacher here. And then all of a sudden that kind of disappeared because unless the teacher was officially retiring or moving out, they basically took away their said, I'm staying here because they also knew the hiring process was going to be much more difficult. So like some people now basically said, I'm not retiring now for a couple of years and stayed in the position or they shifted people around because they're just too worried about now bringing somebody in new there. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting, you know, the, how that's changed all that. Like you said, your competitors here with the student teachers. And I remember years ago when I was a graduate assistant with my one professor during my early doctorate programs, I had to do a, you know, pre-course for pre-service teachers. And it was really interesting. Three had jobs lined up right away. And two, she, they were kind of just running around like, can I have a job? Can I have a job? And you know, the, the, this of course was 10 years ago. It's a different story now versus yeah, yeah. now that they had open position. I'd be like, when can you start? Come this way. We'll, we'll test. Yeah, you. exactly. You're good. Hey, you got a job. Come on over. So this is an interesting thing. Cause you know, you're like many educators fill their niche in education with gamification, digital learning. And you just said right here, you were doing a lot of coding pieces. Like one thing too, when I was in uh, early, my undergraduate, I was, you know, making my own websites, HTML coding, my division leader teaches that too. So what, what, why were you so focused on coding and programming interactive lessons? How did that really come about here? you mentioned a little bit about kind of you had a focus on that, but really, you know, some people don't say, wow, I'm going to do, do computer science. I'm ready to go. But some people to say, well, you know, I kind of picked this up and I'm just going to go and do it from here. 
Well, for starters, um, if going back to day one, so we'll say 15 years ago when I got started in this profession, I was never explicitly teaching kids to code. That wasn't anywhere like on anybody's radar like it was today, like it is today. But I recognized in my undergrad that 30% of my courses were math related. And so teaching math in my classroom allowed kids to learn to code as a byproduct of the process. So for the last decade and a half, I've been saying, you know, quoting Mitch Resnick, if you can learn to read, you can read to learn and coding is no different. And so I looked at it through that lens and I always taught my curriculum using code, math, science, as much as I could. Again, we teach to our strengths and those are things I have always been incredibly passionate about. I know what it's done for me in my career and I want to expose as many kids to that same opportunity professional coder not but give them the option to make that decision for themselves so i started presenting my work at various conferences and after school workshops here in ontario and it started to spiral as that coding wave started to get bigger and bigger the tsunami of coding wave hour of code launches i don't even remember when that was anymore 2010 i don't even know i think it was i had just switched jobs in the right at that time and when i had come in i was already told them about i was doing our code and the guy before me had done it and they said that was their very very first year doing it themselves and they kind of just found it out by accident so here i was that was 2000 it was 2015 so somewhere around 2013 2014 when we had that hour i'd I'd have to look that up maybe later in the show notes yeah um, so so we'll say maybe maybe five or six years ago this got really hot really quickly and I presented at a conference and the ministry here in Ontario the provincial ministry one person from the ministry happened to be in my session I was doing a session on making math with code using scratch six years ago right and she said have you ever thought about putting in for what's called a TLLP so here in Ontario we have teacher learner and leadership program grant grant funding so I was actually hired by the ministry to create curriculum resources that use code because they said you've been doing this for 15 years we're not reinventing the wheel can we create a ministry website that's going to sit on the ministry site for the province of Ontario that has 16 coding coding lessons but they're actually math and language lessons that use code because we evaluate math and language and from there it just went viral so to speak uh once you're once you sit on a ministry team then you start consulting for school districts all over the province then you meet amazing people like dave burgess and you get that message amplified tenfold again and uh here we are having this conversation with you today <laughs> yeah that's very true i mean good you know and like i said i was just talking to uh tara martin and dave burgess the other day because i was wearing one of the pirate shirts since pirate con got canceled and i was trying to get out there and do that myself too but yeah it's very it's very true because i remember too when when the, your original book and we'll talk about your books a little later on too i remember when code breaker came i said i think i've heard of this guy i, I think i know brian i think i've heard of him because i had a friend in canada who was a teacher and i know they had talked about this one guy who did a lot coding was really great but then was saying you know we have you know nothing new he just found a way to organize it and then later i was like yeah i have heard of this i have heard of this guy so it's kind of it's kind of funny how yeah it blew up like that it's also very interesting too because you're also a tedx speaker and um you know many people who organize or appear in tedx is usually in one form or another so how did you end up on tedx you know i actually knew a teacher who did a school tedx i tried organizing several years ago which completely full of class. But you know, how did you know, end up doing TEDx? You know, what was that process like? So I've done three. I only applied for one. Uh, the first two, I was invited. So the very the first one, 
I'm going to say 2016. 2016, okay. I think, yeah, you can check the date on YouTube. Yeah, I'll have to go on YouTube and check that out. Some, uh, somebody, my, my, the city in which I was teaching at the time was creating a TEDx event to highlight innovators in the community. It had a big agricultural focus because we're very rural here. There was a lot of artificial intelligence and robotics in, in agriculture, but they wanted somebody from the education side. And that was incredibly humbling uh, to be asked to be recognized as quote unquote, I'm using the air quotes, the <laughs> innovator in education with the local school board. So they said, would you be interested in talking about your work with computational thinking in the classroom for our local people? And I said, well, heck yeah, I would. And wouldn't you know, I got there a day of and I'm looking at the list and they had me at the very bottom. And they said, yeah, you're headlining this. And it took me back and I said, what are you talking about? Oh, they said, no. you're, you're the last guy. So the following year, they invited me back to kick off the event. So I was one of the very first speakers to sort of get the second cohort going. And, and uh, yeah, when you have two under your belt and you want to apply for a third, I think they look at it and go, okay, this guy kind of knows what he's doing. So <laughs> the third one was a lot easier. I, I remember it was and I learned. Yeah. I, I learned they put Ted puts that red circle on the floor so you don't wander. My first TED talk is atrocious. I wander back and forth. I'm so nervous. The camera guy can't follow me. That's why the circle's on the ground so you don't move. It's for the cameraman. It's also branding, but it's for the camera dude. There's a TEDx I walked by uh, Heather Holmes who's talked about ethics and the business practices, and it's so funny. She starts moving, but you can tell that sometimes she's like, "Okay, I can't go that far." <laughs> and some of the kids, kids later on said, "Like, why did she keep stopping like this?" Like, I think she can't move a certain port, you know. And like you said, you said with the red with the red circle there too. I remember when Tom Nesseloni did one too for kids deserving. I mean. It's like he never moved. He was like, I'm stuck right here. And later on, I was kind of like, I don't think they're allowed to move. And like you said, you were walking around. My, my friend who did one for the school, too, they had to put the stage. and They had big tape marks saying, you don't go past here. You don't go past here. We want you to act like there's really people here and have an audience. So technically, they did. They had the student body there. But they were basically like, I want you to address the audience. But it's like, do not go past this. And it's. You know, it's funny because it showed some of the recordings on his phone. And I was laughing because one of the kids started going over the line and he all of a sudden was like, oh, let me just back up here for a second. <laughs> hey, Ted, Ted's on to something. We all need our little red circle right now and you can't step foot on mine six, six feet apart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we can have TEDx from the, from the grocery stores right now, you know, hey. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's interesting you just talking about robotics and coding. I got I've, I've been putting things into robotics myself in the last couple of years, but that's really interesting. Is you're a Makey Makey certified teacher, and I remember when Makey Makey first was on um, on a Kickstarter. I remember getting my first one. I was my last year at Christian Life. We ordered it, and the, my principals and teachers were like, "What are you doing?" And like I'm I'm using tinfoil. And like why? And all of a sudden, like now tin they're like it's making music. And I actually brought it to one of our music students. Like okay, play the piano, and he was like jamming up a store so how did you get certified like that because like i said i see it but i don't i know very few teachers that get certified with making i'm this goes back to 2012 so in 2012 makey makey is on uh, kickstarter and my my blog and my twitter had really blown up because of this coding wave quote unquote so I reached out to them and because, you know, corporate partners are incredibly important. We need all stakeholders here in education. I reached out to them and said, this is something that I need to get my hands on. What do you think about a little partnership? And uh, they're going to hate me for saying this now, but it's been eight years so I can let the cat out of the bag. They sold me, 
they sold me 40 makey makeys at $10 a pop. So for $400, I had 40 makey makeys and I was able to go and put five in every classroom in my whole school in exchange wow. for obviously some content creation. So make some lesson plans. How do I use makey makey in my math class? All they wanted was you're the teacher, we're the, we're the corporate people. If you can provide lesson plans and content using our product, we're going to put our product in your kids' hands. And, and that's, that's essentially how it happened. And I'm, I'm still happy to be partnered with them. My, my kit over here, I still have 15 Makey Makeys that are dated 2012. They just wow. last forever and they've got so many kids' hands on them. I know because when I did teaching program, when I did program, we, we didn't run it this year. We won't be able to run next year because of um, peace done. And I'm kind of bringing it a little bit more into my graphic design here class for Makey Makey, which some people are like, how are you going to use a Makey Makey for graphic design? Like, oh, watch, I'll figure something out. Oh, yeah. But I, I had the kids make their own game controller. So they coded on scratch just after it turned to 3.0. And I had to relearn it and find YouTube videos and, you know, Thank you, Ed Puzzle, if you're listening out there, because you made this really easy for me. <laughs> Sponsored um, by. But I had them take their program, and they had to make controllers that match the game. But at the same time, they had to, you know, I was showing them how to code with that. And a lot of the kids were just like, so wow, like, wow. I said, this guy, this is, you, you know, you've learned how to program. You've learned how to design the program. Now it's like applying the program. I said, that's what the end of the semester would be, because I had the robots and I had the makey makes. I said, now you got to apply that to work. You know, you don't just do it and hope it works. But I said, you know, if, if I'm going to hit, you know, even though this is a piece of tinfoil, if I'm going hit, to hit the B button it better make you know the character shoot his power up or make the flappy bird fly up and it was really cool I had one kid that made a flappy bird and they were doing this and they got so into it my vice principal walked in he's looking at what, what we're doing and he's like oh this is amazing and he goes over to my one kid and like what are you doing he's like, he's like I'm, 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 I'm on 100 points he's like, not right now Mr. Volts I'm going I'm going <laughs> and you know, and, and like I said, he was kind of surprised, but he's like looking at me like, did he code this? Like he code the whole thing and made the controller for it. He's looking at me like, that's well done, Mr. Reed. And I said, yeah. And then he just, you know, walked out of the room. <laughs> it was the funniest. <laughs> I wanted him to come in, but that was just so funny. He's just like hovers around one student. He's just like, you know, like, okay, okay, I pass 100 points. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> I was cracking up with it. And his Makey Makey was actually our, our school logos were the Cardinals. So he had the he had a Cardinal controller with the little tin on the bottom of it. So he was tapping nice. it. So it, it, was doing, it was really good. I had a lot of, I had really some interesting controllers. I had some kids that kind of went and just did something completely in their own. But I looked at them and I said, no, you're not making this. Like, what is like, we're not making cannabis symbols here. It's like, if you're going to make a leaf, it better be Canada. <laughs> and it better be red or orange. I'm not having anything green. Because I had a kid try to pull that on me a few years ago. They were making the can Canadian flag, you know, no problem. But then he decided to change the red to green. And I went to the principal, be like, okay, I'm not getting in trouble with this. But this is what they did. And they looked at me like, that's not your fault. And there's, there are quite a few Canadian cannabis flags right now. Because federally, it is legal in our, in our country as of yeah. last year. <laughs> So, but yeah, but I can tell you right there, inspiration, same thing with the micro bits too, because I know you yep. told me about the micro bits and we had a lot of fun. My uh, old tech club, we, we kind of only met a few hand, handful of times, but they were always like taking the make a bit and having a word flash across it. So we, we, we only got to scratch the surface with that. So, but yeah, I'll, I'll tell you right now, Brian, thank you right there for the inspiration to really go to the next level of that. So it's been really high. And speaking of that, we always have different styles of innovation. So you talk about a lot of your students and you talk about them working with the Makey Mace, also your teachers. So how do you show that innovation for students in your teaching and even your, you know, student teachers? I model it. Uh, truth be told, in 2009, we had a big push from the school district about teaching digital citizenship. 
But in 2009, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube were all blocked in school. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have a program for our eighth graders to start thinking about a career path and looking at industry and what they need to do to get to that career path. And in 2009, I can't believe it's been 11 years, my eighth grade class said to me, you studied computer science. Why are you teaching? Not, not like no offense, but what, what was your path? And it clicked. They said, why can't you meld, merge the two, Mr. Aspinall? And I thought, holy crap, you're onto something. Mm -hmm. So we built, we built an app. So modeling it. So in 2009, I built an app called Twidgicate, as in Twitter for Education. And in three years, we drove it to 200,000 users. And that first class was, you know, my beta testers. They gave me feedback on it. The app's free. The app's completely free. It wasn't monetized. It was more about the process of creating a tool to allow me to teach digital citizenship with my kiddos. So I used coding to solve an authentic problem for me as an educator and to create a tool for other educators that might have social media blocked in their districts. Uh, since then, I've done three more apps. So I think I've had four. I've built four apps in the last 10 years, all of them solutions to problems um, as, as a teacher and modeling it as such so that my, my kiddos go, well, you know what? Maybe I can use code to do X, Y, and Z to solve whatever the heck they need to do. The entire thing has been model it. It's like in, in so many ways, it was genius hour before that was a thing. It's always been mm -hmm. passion-based learning, passion projects. But I, I say my approach has always been that genius hour type model where I also have a project. Yeah, and it's interesting you talked about, like I said, before it was a thing. It was really interesting. I mean, we can, you know, when we were talking earlier about Dave Burgess, but I remember I had several teachers when the book came out and I first read, and they said, I've been teaching like this for years. I just, somebody just kind of made a book. Because I'm like, yeah, and I said, and this was a kindergarten teacher. One was a fourth grade teacher, my old school. But, you know, I walked one time in and I said, I said, what are you doing, Mrs. Fickle? And she's like, oh, we're making spacesuits for NASA. And I mean, they were actually making spacesuits. She actually won a teacher of the week from our local news case because the, the, the mom was reading the letter, to, a principal was reading the letter. She's like, she went on to wear this spacesuit for three days and actually learned how to packet ice cream at six years old. And I, and I just went, Suzanne, I see, this is why, yeah, you, this is why you're, that's why I come to your classroom all the time. And she, she's been teaching over 30 years. She's still teaching. She doesn't plan to retire for another year. So, you know, Amazing. She's, she, 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 she loves to do that kind of innovation. And she's always looked at the kids being more interactive. She doesn't want them just to go to kindergarten. Like, okay. And says, and, and, you know, here's your color. She's more of like, no, 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 you're going to make something. You're going to apply it. And then that way you get the first grade. You're just going to blow your teachers away with what you know. So she was always about that. As they say, create, you know, creating a, you know, the whole piece for, you know, why they should be in her classroom. I never, I really right. often saw kids upset when they were in her classroom, unless they just did something they weren't supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. But though my favorite story was is she was mad at the kids getting up all the time. So she said, okay, I'm going to see if you guys can control yourself for 20 minutes. Nobody can get up for anything. They're working on a project. And one of them, he, I was in the room, he gets up, goes to throw away a piece of paper and we all like look at him and he looks at himself going, Oh no. <laughs> he just got up and did that. I mean, and he, and he was a good kid, but he's the one who decided, Oh, I got to get up and throw away this piece of paper. And all of a sudden every, we're all looking at him. kindergartners, the teachers and the principal is there for an observation. We all looked at him and he's like, uh Oh, uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> he really kind of put himself in there so you know one thing we talk about the pixel classroom uh podcast is x factor that one true gift that bring to the classroom every day you know i i call myself a crafter i craft things lessons projects ideas this podcast for some reason what do you think yours is your x factor brian i'm gonna i'm gonna hope 
I'm going to hope that it's rapport. Um, mm. I, I take a lot of time and energy in September to try and really get to know each, each individual. Um, because, and I, I mean, we're all talking about this these days in education, that relationships matter. But just by creating that rapport, you create a community of trust, a community where people feel the freedom to take risks and uh, don't feel ridiculed through failure because of the dynamic of the classroom setup. And I think that modeling my own mistakes because programming is hard and coding is hard and I will, oh, yeah. you know, write code that doesn't work and just, just all of those pieces, failing in front of them on purpose, being vulnerable in front of them, sharing my truths in front of them, you know, seventh grade and eighth grade. So I might close the door because the topic of conversation is going to be a little bit on that street side, less school side, but that's mm -hmm. okay. This is where these kids live. So meet them where they are and, and, and push them further. I, I think rapport is, yeah, that's a grand example. I know all my principals always say, you got to create a rapport with the class. And like, I'm trying. Some of these kids, they're just not. I mean, when I was working as a steam enrichment at uh, Jackson, you know, I was the tech manager. So I had to run that. And then I read, you know, classes for four hours out of the day. But besides trying to make sure why somebody's computer exploded or why we had no internet working on the second floor. But it was so funny, too, is like, you know, some of those kids, you know, it was the relationships were there. And I had some that were just like, no matter what I did, it was just, you know, it was a battle every day. And then the teacher looked at me and pat me on the shoulder. was like, don't worry, Ryan. I, I have this exact same problem too. So it, it, I have to say the rapport is a great thing. I, I've always been a relationship to him in my current school. I mean, my first week there, I was going to the library, my little BB-8 robot. I was walking in the classroom, talking to them. And they're all looking at me like, why are you here? I'm like, gotta, gotta get to know you guys. We all work together. I, I might as well be good. And everybody was like, he's one of the most friendliest guys I think we've ever hired here. Because <laughs> they're like, he walks in, he asks questions. And I said, well, it's the first time I've been teaching a classroom in years. This is, you know, over here. It was like, I'm in public school. It's like, you know, I, I need to learn the ropes here. So when, I think rapport is a huge piece. And I mean, we always talk about relationship with kids. You know, I always tell the kids, even the ones that test me every day are just that one. It's just like, no matter what, they don't really see any value in school. But they always look at me like, why are you? You are so patient with me. I'm like, oh, I tell you, I give you a clean slate every single day. So I said, until you graduate, you're here hey, with me. Yeah. And we're going to somehow find a way to make this work. And I've, I had two kids here that graduated. I mean, the, the, the current class, all the struggles they go into and even COVID not really having a graduation. There were several kids in those classes where, you know, for four years, even before I was, you know, year and a half where I was there, they were just testing those teachers to like, I don't know if I can create a relationship with these kids because they don't want to have a relationship. And then when COVID happened, we found out they really did rely on us a lot. So it was well, kind of an of, amazing thing. One of, one of the metrics we used was snow days. So in, in grade seven and eight, majority of our kids stay home when the buses are not running because we're all bus communities out here. Mm -hmm. But we noticed in the, the last school that I, that I taught in, we, we went gradeless, so to speak. I'm using air quotes again. We stopped putting grades on kids' work. It was only feedback. And that was a struggle for the first year because a kid in eighth grade has been in elementary school for 10 years and they're used to a mark. But as we got better and better and better with that model, just focusing on feedback and the only time a kid sees a number or a letter is on a report card, we started to notice that their absentee, absentee rates went down. So it went from the majority of kids staying home on snow days to the majority of kids coming to school on snow days. We stopped talking about standardized testing, but our scores continued to rise and rise and rise. 
And that's when we knew we were onto something. When a kid shows up in her dad's 18-wheeler transport truck because she wants to be there on a snow day, and I said, why are you here? The content's on Google Classroom. Mm-hmm. And her reply, was, her reply was FOMO, fear of missing out. I knew we were onto something. Yeah, and I, I have to agree. I mean, that's the big thing is, you know, why do they want to have class? Like I said, you, you know, after I my seniors officially wrapped up last week and, uh, and, and you know, before we were recording, I was talking about some of the things I'm doing for some of my seniors saying to them. But I had three just say, I'm just going to miss your class, Mr. Reed. It was always fun. You knew what we were talking about and everything. They're like, oh, was that your multimedia class? Like, no, that was my consumer ed class. And they looked at me like, really? I'm like, yeah, they, they enjoyed consumer ed. So apparently I've been doing something right as a teacher if they actually say, wow, you told me how to buy a house and exactly, you know, what the European Union is. So apparently uh, I, I did think, right. I had a senior a couple years ago, she, she graduated, but I remember the last day of class, we had just finished the final and she, just before she left, we're all heading to lunch and she turns to me and goes, Mr. Reed, like what? It's like, you know, I didn't know what to think of you as a teacher. And then the thing is, you really not only know a lot, you actually made me care about what I was learning. And she walked out the door and I said, and I have officially succeeded with that student when she walked out. And I, I saw her last semester. She just, she actually um, came in broadly, but I was so happy. She's like, do you miss me? I like, I miss you all the time. <laughs> you were always a great little, she was always so funny to talk about. And believe it or not, she's going out to be an accountant. So we were actually pretty proud of her to go there. She hated numbers, but she just had this knack. Several of our other teachers like, I don't know why you don't like math when you know how to do it better than your students who are on the honor roll. And I mean, she wasn't a national honors or anything, but she was so good with numbers. But then she's like, I hate math. I hate doing perimeter. I hate doing calculations. But they're like, but your accounting class, you got an A in the class. Like, you got an A minus in consumer ed. They're all, we're all looking at her like, why do you mean you hate math? You're really good at math. I think she just didn't like what she had to learn in math. I mean, when she looked at some of her stuff, I mean, accounting, you got to look at figures and percentages, which she knew how to do. But I think when she looked at things like calculations and finite, that's where she was very turned off with that too. Right. Said, well, if you go into the science field, this is extremely needed, but I'm like, you're right. I said, my sister's an accountant and programming. She actually works for an accounting firm, but she's a program for them. She knows her numbers, but she says herself someday, she's just like, I hate looking at this number because I learned it in school and I hated it then and I don't use it now versus, oh yeah, all the figures and the percentages, this I use every day. Yeah, right. <laughs> so let's shift gears over to a, a book. So let's let's talk about your first two books, Code Breaker and Block Breaker. And trust me, I've been trying to do Minecraft EDU for years and I try to get <laughs> have my son and our friend's son who's six years old teach me um, Minecraft. I know the characters. I know the basic builds. Uh, I, I, I have not been able to do it, though. I've seen teachers where a whole fifth grade teacher, they are on Minecraft every single day. There are people that use coding. So how did these books come about here? I mean, you talked about what, what led you for Dave Burgess and everybody's saying it, but really, how did Codebreaker and Blockbreaker come about? And, you know, I've read both. So how did you differentiate those two? Codebreaker came as a grad school project. Um, We had to obviously publish content. I got my master's in math education. There was a whole course on computational thinking. Believe it or not, the faculty of ed actually reached out to me and said, this is a brand new program. There's a computational thinking course. Would you be interested in getting your master's? And that had always been on my radar. So I thought, you know what? Yeah, this, this sounds great. If I'm going to do a master's, it might as well align with what I'm already doing with computational thinking. Well, when I graduated, they didn't let me leave, which is why I'm now in that higher ed space. But I was just encouraged by professors to actually publish work. You know, that's what it means to be in the higher ed space. And I thought, you know what? I had to create all of this content for school. I've been blogging for 10 years. Maybe this is an opportunity to pursue something new. I just know is not in my vocabulary. And I just thought I would like to have author beside my name. 
And uh, I met Dave and Shelley through George Kuros, my Canadian brother up here in Edmonton. I love George. <laughs> he hooked me up and uh, Dave and Shelley were two of the kindest people I've ever met. And they thought the book had super potential. So we dropped them both. Codebreaker is not a how to code. It's sort of my story with examples of coding in subject areas. And then the follow-up Blockbreaker has more of a spatial reasoning focus on using tools like Minecraft or like Lego to have students explore more abstract thinking in math. It's not a how to Minecraft book. Teachers are professional people. We don't need to know how to use Minecraft. We just need to know what it's capable of. And we need to know them really, really well. So Blockbreaker came as a result of some of the work I was doing with Microsoft Canada for about a year and a half. I was doing some consulting work with Microsoft Canada. Um, they even flew me to Budapest to do a Minecraft panel. Like it was. Wild. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. And she went to Budapest. It's like, I went to Budapest on Microsoft Canada's dollar. Like that's, it was in, it was incredible. They paid for my substitute teacher, everything. Like it didn't cost my school a dime. I got to go wow. for a and speak on this panel. I met all kinds of amazing educators from all over the globe. Uh, so that's, that's how Blockbreaker came to be. And then after going through that process twice with a, a legit publisher, I thought, well, I'm getting bored. So Codebreaker <laughs> EDU is where we shifted gears. And now I'm in that publishing space as well, trying to amplify the small voices. Like I want, I want those educators who are kicking ass in the classroom that only have 200 followers on Twitter. Like I, I want those people who are authentic. I, I had somebody on my podcast the other day. I said, where can people find you on Instagram? And she's like, I don't even know my handle. Those are the people <laughs> I want because they're doing amazing things and their stories need to be shared. So Codebreaker EDU is our new venture of trying to capture some of those voices of people doing crazy awesome things. And I'm, I'm hoping to collect the voices of teachers, school leaders, and system leaders that I've met over the last three years while I've been consulting across North America. Yeah, and I have to say too, because I also brought your website too, because I mean, you were talking about the coding, which is for like several, you know, this, by the way, if people listen, this is not sponsored by Kickstarter. We just seem to have a lot of people go to Kickstarter. I have two books I published that worked through Kickstarter, so we'll just get that out of the way. Um, but yeah, there was one called Hello Ruby, because one of the biggest problems was just before I left Christian Life and also when I was at um, Jackson Charter School was um, was trying to teach the younger kids to code. And we had Hopscotch and a few other things that worked great, but you know, Hello Ruby came out and they loved it because they could build their own computer stuff. Now, here you you go you know you got like think like a coder which is you know think of everyday activity you have scratch the surface which is middle school you have you know hallway um hallway connections which is great because autism and coding because believe it or not i had a student he just graduated I, I i've got a you know i was just writing his uh, graduation card the other day autism he was fantastic fantastic with coding he wants to be even a lawyer if not a lawyer he definitely wants to work on computer security and i told him like you've got the knack for this he was very focused but sometimes people asked him too about it and i know i brought up uh, autism and coding which it just i think he just released too long ago and i had a uh, kindergarten teacher bought it and said this kid loves it they're stuck on this they're coding grading and then you have other things such as learn math because when I did my last programming class last year, I started using, um, you know, Khan Academy. And a lot of these kids are like, what, Mr. Reed, what are we doing here? This is a math program. We use this for Mr. Standards and Mr. Swenson's class. I'm like, guys, how do you think coding really works? And you know me, I'm not the best with math either. But I said, go through this. And it was amazing. They just took on off. And I mean, you've got an amazing thing. Grace, Gracie, which is another great one here, because that's innovation. That's definitely for younger too. So, but yeah, if I can, can I do a quick shout out on both of those? Oh, yes, like, please do. 
the first one, shout out to Maggie Faye at Maggie Faye. I saw her speak in Toronto about a year and a half ago, and she teaches in a contained spec ed class. She's got a lot of students with autism. And her message was coding is a new way for her profile of students to communicate. And that was a light bulb moment for me. I thought we need a primary read aloud about autism awareness that talks about communicating differently code. And that's where the Codebreaker brand was a perfect fit. The Gracie book, shout out to Daphne McMenemy, who's actually working on the Codebreaker team now. She saw in her own daughter that it, she didn't want it to be perceived as a male dominated space, obviously. Oh, yeah. So being inclusive in kindergarten, uh, the story Gracie is about a student who's completely disengaged at school until her teacher brings in a robot and that unlocks Gracie's potential. And Gracie's actually named after Grace Hopper, one of the first women in computer science. Oh, actually. yes. And she looks like her. She, she's uh, Gracie Hopper coined the term debugging after finding a bu literal bug in her computer. So that's where the Gracie character comes from. A little backstory, some history of computer science there. I have to say, another thing is I love the cover. I was just working on some things. I have this big project, but I said, I got to make a little Gracie robot, robot uh, perler beaters. I'm like, I got the green. I can make go off. <laughs> I, I'm going to, event. I probably will get it the next couple of weeks. I have this project I've been working on for weeks, but you know, school took over so much time because I have a history yes. arcade and I got characters from, you know, Mr. Dude to Donkey Kong and everybody's looking at it like, this looks awesome. I'm like, yeah, I wish I could finish this stupid thing. I've been working on it for a month and a half. And I said, I'm finally putting joust over here. They're like, so it's a big collage, but, and they're like, like, what are you going to do after that? I was like, I'm going to be doing some book characters again. And I said, which one? I said, check out this one by Gracie. This is really cool. And they're like, oh, that'd be easy to do. I said, I know. Just put the green here, put it here, and be like, hey, look, it's 8-bit. Get it? 8-bit. Gracie, hey. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, um, and another thing is you also had a book I bought, which we I put out here, called Risk Taker. What was, you know, what's Risk Taker here? That's a major shift from things like Code Breaker and Gracie and uh, Training. What, what exactly was Risk Taker all about? So Code Breaker, believe it or not, came out November of 2017. This is, it's going to be its third anniversary. And we had that out for our hour of Code Week, intentional to have it drop in November for Computer Science Ed Week in December. Mm -hmm. um, after, believe it or not, it's true, it's true, uh, speaking to some other authors, um, Adam Welcome, uh, George Kouros, um, their advice to me was, you've got really good content, um, but it's not timeless. And that made me think, coding's going to be around for a long time, and Minecraft, those tools are going to change. Right. So the idea for Risk Taker was more of a timeless piece that I wanted to write through a leadership lens and through those stories. So I start each chapter with a quote, I tell my story, and then I have a story from another educator. So there's 10, 10 or 12 other stories included in Risk Taker through that leadership lens of this is how I've shaken up my classroom or my school to do things differently. Um, and I also wanted Risk Taker to be the first teacher book published by Codebreaker EDU. So there was, there was a few campaign goals with that one. Number one, to amplify and highlight 10 or 12 people, amazing people I've met over the years. Tell my story again through a, a more of a pedagogical lens, less focus on technology. So just exploring different niches, different areas, different avenues. 
Right, which is very good. I mean, I think you bring up a good point about, you know, like I said, you know, coding's not going to, I mean, coding was, has been around for a very, very long time. It's just changed. I remember when I had uh, my first year of my observation, I had my principal do my observation. They were seeing what they were coding, but she was saying, hey, I was doing this in high school. And they went, you miss a shower? She's like, yeah, I did this. I mean, she's 10 years older than me, but she's like, I was doing coding like this way back when too. And it kind of fell in the wayside and it came back and so forth. But it, it's very true. You know, it's going to change. It's not going to go away, but they're right. There are some books that sometimes do get outdated. I mean, when I was writing my dissertation, I was doing my research. You know, I looked over professional development and mobile technology. I brought up a, a, a piece that was actually from 1980 before the Ronald Reagan big computer science piece during the during the height of the Cold War. And people were like, well, why did you use that reference? Like, well, they were talking about how they had to train the people and they had to have it from leadership or they weren't going to do it at all. So I said I had a point in my research. But at the same time is it's like, you know, it's so funny. This is 30, it, that now it's 40 years old, that article. But it's so funny is that was 40 years ago and it's still relevant today. So in that piece, it was kind of timeless because they're still saying like, you know, see, we still did. But you do read some books and sometimes the tools disappear. Uh, our buddy Tony Vincent likes to do his, you know, in memorial <laughs> at the end of every year about apps and programs that have gone away. And I, I you know, I eat up tons of books from you and Dave Burgess and I Impress and other books, Edgy Gladiators. And some are say, well, this is a great book. And I picked up one the other day, which was great. But I said, I've read this tons of times. This, I, you're right. It's not going to change. But, you know, it's like I picked this up when it's like this isn't going to change. And, you know, versus like this is a person's story. This is an amazing story. You know, this isn't going – it's inspiring me. It's make more – you know what? I never thought about that. I should try that today. And that's that's interesting. I mean, Risk Taker is definitely one of those books. I read um, – uh, can't even think of the book's name right now. That tells you, you should see my library in the basement here. I ended up, our neighbor, <laughs> our neighbor got rid of this bookshelf and I, I, he gave it to me free. And my wife's looking at me like, why do you need that? Like, I need it for my book. She's like, why can't you go Kindle like everybody else? I said, well, if my Kindle reader work, I would save 10 bucks. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, that's the one thing is you, you, you sometimes will get books and you know, like I said, nothing changes and you're kind of like, why did I get this book or why did I go to the library? And then you get the ones that are just like, wow, I could use this tomorrow. Like, wow, this is still inspiring me 15, 20 years later. I mean, risk takers that code breaker, like I said, there's some pieces there, but some things have changed. I gave it to my coworker. She read some things, but she said, well, this changed, but I can still use this. I said, yeah, it's great for reference book. And I think that's what we have because you are always worried about something being outdated. Um, you know, Michael Cohen, the tech rabbi talked about, he didn't want to write a book that would be outdated in a couple of years. He wanted something that was relevant now and could be constantly used. You know, I've been trying to write a book for seven years and every time I got about 20 pages in somebody would either release a book similar to it and then of course two three like I said code breakers three years later now I, I'd say like you know what I'm glad I never wrote about this because it would have been outdated and who would have cared so it's like maybe it's a good thing it's taken me seven years to finally you know write a 120 page book that maybe might see the light of the day but I think the more personal stories definitely the ones that are more timeless and last longer versus, oh yeah, we're talking about social emotional learning. Yeah, things change, but it's like, you know, I can grab a book from 15 years ago and you'll still see similar changes. There might just be different pieces. Yeah, for me, that my, my book, the go-to for me is Mindstorms, written by Seymour Papert at MIT Media Lab in 1980, when he was talking about how to use Logo, a programming language, for math learning. It's not a how to code book. It's how children learn written by a math professor who used the programming language to engage kids in kinesthetic activities in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And Mitch Resnick, who created with his team at MIT, who created Scratch, well, he studied under Seymour Papert. Like we have decades of pedagogical research. Sure, I don't use Logo anymore. 
but his book is completely timeless. It's about how kids learn. It's about math learning. It's about making it fun and kinesthetic. Swap out logo, put in scratch. The book reads as if it was written today. Right, and that's exactly it. I mean, I remember the old F11 game system, which was during the early days of the early Ataris. He was the first black STEM teacher that really focused on that. And people looked at him like, oh, why are you doing this? And he went, what are you talking about? We've been doing this since the 50s, since the space race started. And, you know, he still will remember. I remember when we had to do Black History Month, They, my, my principal gave it to me and said, oh, you want to do this? Oh, I know who he is. And I was doing this research. And I went, that was him? That, I mean, it still <laughs> resonated with me years later, too. It was really funny, but how he did all that. Wow. But yeah, it, it is amazing when you go into the book series. So Brian, what, what else would you like to share with us in our uh, last few minutes here at the podcast? Uh, if I could give a shout out to some of the amazing people uh, that inspire me on a regular basis, we just published Staying Grounded by Dr. Michael Hines, who's a superintendent in Long Island. Um, I'm really proud of that project. Sir Ken Robinson, shameless promotion. Sir Ken Robinson <laughs> gave us an endorsement on that one, which, I mean, when you have Sir Ken on the cover of your book, you know, you're, you're onto something incredibly special. Uh, Rock Your Class by Etienne Stephen Langlois. He's a wicked friend of mine, high school rock star slash French teacher. He does, he, he, he tours. He literally is a French rock star. He does concerts for high schools and elementary schools all over the world. Uh, while teaching, and he just published Rock Your Class. I just checked, it's still a number one bestseller in lesson planning on Amazon Canada, uh, and he lives just 20 minutes from me, so shout out to him, excited about that, and Darren Peppard yesterday from Colorado, he's got a book. Oh, uh, yes! Go to Awesome! Yeah, I did, I saw that last night before I was going to bed, I was like, that's gonna be awesome, I was like, you gotta buy here, but yeah, I like about the rock, the rock in the classroom, and uh, there might have been some suggestions to finally get that book here, so I might have a copy on its way on Monday. Here. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, yeah, we have been bombarded with manuscripts in the last week and a half which is really exciting we're taking our time to to dig through them and just needed the right partners to bring those to life and we're super stoked that they are and uh we're going to continue to chase greatness i can't forget about don epps and finding lost smiles i met don and vicky epps back in october and they had this idea for a children's story about for those children who just lose their smile how can we help them find it? And who, we couldn't have predicted COVID when we started that project. But as a result of COVID, it lit a fire under us to get this thing done because the world needs a pr something like this. So Finding Lost Smiles is an amazing primary kindergarten, grade one, two, three, read aloud by administrator Don Epps and his wife Vicky from Chanute, Kansas. That's ah, and, and I have to agree. It's a great, it's a great time, uh, fun thing. And I, I, I believe it or not, I always say children's books are harder to write because at the same time, you also got to appease them to the adult readers, not just the kids. Like I made small hope, but when I was first writing it, people looked at me like, well, you got to make sure the adults get this. They're like, oh no, I've, I've got a plan. They were saying, I liked your book because yes, I understood it better as like an adult versus my kid. My kids were like, oh, a guinea pig from space. This is cool. But I'm like, what's the message? And it's like, oh, the adults got it. <laughs> Uh, and, and I have I have to share this because not nobody knows this. Not well, not a lot of people know this. The illustrator of our books is only 19, 20 years old. She's a brilliant model student, does it all. She's also a visible minority. She was a student of my sister-in-law, Alice. Shout out to everyone can learn math, uh, who is an, a very talented artist. 
So when I got connected to her, I said, what are your goals in your art? And she said, representation. I never read books as a kid where I thought people like me were represented. And I was like, you are the person who is going to illustrate every single one of Codebreaker's books. Because all I want to do is amplify people. And if I can do that for you through image, I am all in. I absolutely agree there. It's that personal connection that really makes it too. Because as I say, don't judge a book by its cover, but at the same time as that book's making you say, I want to come see that book. It's got my attention. Absolutely. So Brian, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and part of the Pixel Classroom. So how can listeners connect with you? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. Aspinall. One, that Twitter account I made for my class in 2009. That's why it's Mr. Aspinall. And I've just continued to use that brand. Ending, so I'm at Mr. Aspinall on Instagram, MrAspinall.com, BrianAspinall.com, and our new CodeBreakerEDU.com. You can find me on Facebook too if you'd like to be friends there. I'm all over the place. You can he Google is. If you want to learn more about the Pixel Classroom Podcast, remember that we are on Anchor, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, Breaker Podcast, Radio Public, Stitcher, and Overcast, and you can copy the RSS feed right into your device. If you like what you hear, please think of subscribing and please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you again, listeners, and I will talk to you again later on the Pixel Classroom Podcast. <laughs>